I invite you to please stand for the reading of the word so we can focus our hearts and minds and bodies as we read from the Gospel of Mark. We're in the sermon series called Question Mark, the questions that Jesus asked of his disciples and of us. Mark 9, verse 30 to 37. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not uh, want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him. And three days after being killed, he will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, for on the way they'd argued with one another who was the greatest. Jesus sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. The Word of God. Please be seated. So I invite you to please take out your phones and go to slido.com, S-L-I-D-O.com. The key word for... Uh, Participating in a poll that I would like to uh, invite you into is great. Don't type the hashtag, just type the word great. Slido.com, great, and we're going to do a poll. Zach, let's go for the first question. As you are up on uh, Slido.com, what is the greatest music genre ever? Now, there are like 200 music genres as I research this, but I just put a few down. Pop, jazz, classical Rock or R&B? What is the greatest musical genre according to you? So far, it seems that pop is actually winning out. That is interesting. R&B. I did not include uh, Pastor Steve Hemway's favorite genre, which is country music, um, because we should not be listening to that. <laughs> oh, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, Wow, that's good. I see we already have 100 participants. Unfortunately, it's going to close at 100, I think. I don't know if... Oh, no, it's going. It's keep going. Pop! Yes! That, you're like, yeah! Pop, pop wins out. Let's go to the next one. The next question is, what is the greatest movie villain of all time? Now, there are many, but the ones I chose are Darth Vader, the Joker, Hans Gruber... The Wicked Witch of the West, or Ursula? I hope you know who Hans Gruber is. Do you all know who Hans Gruber is? If not, you have to watch my favorite Christmas movie of all time, Die Hard Tonight. It's a great Adventist movie for Saturday night. Okay, so no love for my favorite villain, Hans Gruber. You all need to go watch. 
Darth Vader wins out. That's not too much of a surprise there. Okay, and one more. Uh, what is the world's greatest food? Now, again, there are many countries where we could have chosen, chosen fruit, food from, but what, according to you, is the world's greatest food? Mexican taco, Japanese sushi, Italian pizza, Middle Eastern falafel, Vietnamese pho, or pad thai. I kept, uh, where's the all button, yeah. For lunch, we shall have all. I did not include the American cheeseburger, and I also did not include the Seventh-day Adventist haystack, <laughs> because that for sure would win out. The greatest food of all time is haystacks. Wow, pizza. Okay. Mama Mia's, here we come. By the way, support local businesses. Mama Mia's, where the pastors go eat all the time. That's fantastic. Awesome. Uh, so next up, let's see, what is, uh, who has the greatest office of the pastoral team? I was going to say who's the greatest pastor on staff, but that would not be good. So Zach, let's go to um, Pastor Icky Taimi is our new lead pastor starting in May. We announced that this last week. We're super excited for that. And this week, while we were uh, hanging out, he came by and sneaked into each of our offices and he said, still finding my place in this world. My place in this world. Anyways, and so he went into Pastor Ben's office. A pretty, pretty nice office. Great pictures there. Then he went to Pastor Bev's office where there is coffee and snacks. Then he went to my office where there's only clickers, I guess. Media pastor. He went to Pastor Otis's office, and since there's only books and chairs, he wrote Icky was here. And then he went to Pastor Raywin's office, which is a great place to sleep. <laughs> right, Raywin? And then he went to I don't know whose office. This is maybe Steve's office? Looks like a hospital. Anyways, which is the greatest office? We ended up in Pastor Ben's office. Because there's a couch where you can sit and relax. And Steve, Pastor Ricky, and myself were jamming to uh, not pop music, but to 2000s and 1990s praise songs. Um, yes, that's what we did. Ben, you have the best office. Congratulations. <laughs> the disciples are arguing about greatness as they've just come from the transfiguration. Well, two of them were with Jesus in the transfiguration. And then last week, as Pastor Rui, when it shared the story of the, the, the dad with the son with the demon. And as they're walking and they're on their way in the Gospel of Mark, by now, many weeks in the Gospel of Mark, we know on their way is the, the language that Mark uses to describe the journey that is a physical journey from north to south from up Capernaum all the way to Jerusalem, but it is a spiritual journey on the way with Jesus. And we see our passage is smack bang in the middle of the Gospel of Mark, where on the way we see this section in the middle from chapter 822 to 1052 is sandwiched with two stories about blindness. There's a miracle uh, of the person who couldn't see Twice Jesus had to heal him, and he sees, and then Bartimaeus on the other end. So we know as Mark tells the story about Jesus moving on the way to the cross, that Jesus is now teaching the disciples, and blindness is one of the main things that are going on here. And so the disciples 
are blind to what greatness means in this world. Who is the greatest? We live in a world where we compare ourselves to others in order to find value. Whether it be grades at school, whether it be a job or a career, whether it be a talent, wherever we are, what we wear, where we live, we compare ourselves to others. And in this process, we hurt each other. It's a little bit like uh, this cartoon, um, Peanuts, where we have Linus and Lucy talking to each other. And Linus says to Lucy, why are you always so eager to criticize me? And Lucy says, I think I have a knack for seeing other people's faults. And Linus says, well, what about your own faults? And Lucy says, I have a knack for overlooking them. Greatness. Here we have the disciples overlooking and having a knack for overlooking what greatness is all about. And so we remember that they are on the way. Jesus says the following to them. The son of man is to be betrayed into human hands and they will kill him. And three days after being killed, he will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying. And they were afraid to ask him. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last and a servant of all. The first thing we need to recognize is as Jesus discusses this idea of greatness with his disciples who missed the mark, that the context is Jesus suffering. In fact, we have mentioned before that there are three passion predictions in this section in the middle of the Gospel of Mark. In chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, Jesus three times repeats that the Son of Man must suffer, will be killed, and will rise again. And each of these stories in chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10 follow the same pattern. Jesus says he must suffer the passion. The disciples don't understand. They are blind to Jesus' spiritual teaching. And then Jesus corrects them along the way. We saw in chapter 8 uh, where Peter s said to Jesus, be quiet, I beseech you, Jesus, don't talk about this. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Now we have this story. In chapter 10, we will see uh, Jesus doing this again. Jesus makes passion corrections for the disciples. In chapter 8, Jesus says, those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will save it. In chapter 9, as Jesus corrects their passion story, Jesus says, whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. And then in chapter 10, Jesus' passion correction is whoever wishes to become great among you must be the servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. In each of these passion stories and passion predictions, Jesus corrects the disciples' ideas of what it means to be a Messiah and therefore what it means to be a follower by saying the Son of Man must suffer. Suffering is at the heart of Jesus' passion and his way to the cross. And the disciples 
it says, are afraid to ask him. And by the way, in the Gospel of Mark, the opposite of faith is not doubt, but the opposite of faith is fear. So here we get into this middle section of Mark, in the middle of the passion prediction, and we see that Jesus acts out the gospel. Jesus demonstrates the gospel by his very own example. Verse 35, it says, Then Jesus took a child and put this child among them. The word for child in Greek means little child. We think somebody below the age of 12 and in all likelihood much younger, an infant or a toddler. Now usually when we think of Jesus and children, we see these paintings and pictures of Jesus with kids on his lap or on their knee, this beautiful genteel kind of image. The challenge is that in antiquity, children were non-people. Children did not have status. In fact, the children in this case should not have been with the men and the disciples. They should have been with the women who were outside serving. The children should not be hanging around the teacher and his students. We know that for children, their status was down low. They were subject to the authority of their fathers. In fact, minor children was on par with the status of a slave. Children, uh, childhood in antiquity was in fact a time of terror. When we look at some of the statistics, infant, infant mortality rates were believed to be about 30% during Jesus' time. And then of those who survived, 30% of live births, kids were dead by the age of six. And then 60% of those who made it past six were gone by the age of 16. And as Bruce Molina reminds us, children suffered first from famine, war, disease, and dislocation. We think of Ukraine today and 1.5 million children who still are suffering. Now, this is not to say that children were not loved and cared for. Children, especially for Jewish families, were a gift from God and a continuation from the, for the family, but usually their status kicked in once they became of age, 12 or 13. So we see Jesus bringing a child. We think of a gentle Jesus taking these wonderful kids like a child dedication here. But childhood during antiquity was a time of terror. Children have no status. They are not the greatest, nor are they great. And see how Jesus treats children in the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to quickly go through a few verses in the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 5, when Jesus had entered, he said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? This little child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at Jesus. Then he put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and he went to where the child was. He took her by the hand, and he said, Talita kum, which means little girl, get up. 
See how Jesus cares for children in Mark. In Mark 7, he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But the woman answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat children's crumbs. A very interesting passage. But so she went home and found the child lying on the bed, and the demon was gone. Notice how Jesus cares for children in Mark. Mark 9, immediately the father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief, last week's story. And in Mark 9, our story for today, then he took the child, put him among them, and wrapped his arms around them and said, whoever welcomes such child welcomes me. And then in Mark 10, further down the line, we see people were bringing little children to Jesus in order that he might touch them. And that the disciples spoke sternly to him. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not stop them, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom as a little child will not enter that. And he took them up in his arms, laid them on his hands on them, and blessed them. Being a child in this time was a terror. And Jesus reaches out to children, embraces them in his arms of love. Jesus does not speak the gospel. Jesus lives and acts the gospel by welcoming children. And this is a refrain in Mark. For all the marginalized people, Jesus reaches out and touches them and welcomes them. The Gentile women in Mark chapter 7, the bleeding women in chapter 5, the lepers in Mark 1, the demoniac from chapter 5, the tax collectors and other notorious sinners in chapter 1, and the little children, much to the disciples' consternation, in chapter 10. See, here's the thing. Greatness is not measured by how much power one has. Little children belong. Greatness is measured by how open we are to being loving people. Now, we need to be clear. The disciples here are not encouraged by Jesus to be like the children. That is a different gospel. That's the gospel of Matthew. Here in the gospel of Mark, the invitation is not for us to be like children. Here, the invitation is for us is to be like Jesus who embraces children. It is Jesus, not the child, who demonstrates what it means to be a servant of all, including the least of these. So Mark 9 says, Then Jesus took a child and put it among them, and taking this child in his arms, he said to them. The interesting thing here is that Jesus... By taking this child in his arms, assumes a stereotypically feminine role to show his male disciples who is truly first. He takes a child into his arms, something that was typically an action of a woman who were the primary caregivers for infants and children in Jesus' day, not unlike our day. Women take little children into their arms and feed them, comfort them, care for them, play with them, keep them from danger. 
Women take children through arms, and we're used to seeing Jesus in the arms of Mary, but here Mark is inviting us to see children in the arms of Jesus like a mother. In fact, during Hellenistic time in the first uh, texts in the first century, we see this highlighted quite a bit of women taking children into their arms. Diodorus tells of a legendary f figure called Cybele. There's a picture on, on, on the screens. And Cybele uh, and the babies who were saved from death by Cybele's, as the myth goes, spells, and taken up into her arms. She had been left for dead as a newborn born herself on the mountain, but she, she was saved, and as such, she became the savior of children and became known as the mother on the mountain. This was what was written in the myth during Jesus' time. And so here we see this mother-like Jesus shows us what it means to be great. It means caring for the least, taking care of the children. Other than the fact that there are a lot of white people in that painting. The, the, the painter clearly, the artist clearly have the men in the background and the women who bring the children to Jesus. See, none of the 12 disciples could nominate himself for the position of the greatest after seeing Jesus do this, what a mother does. If you want to nominate anyone for greatness, it is the women who they see tending to the children and bringing them to Jesus. The mothers, the grandmothers, the aunts, the sisters. It is the women who took care of the children who are destined for greatness. The women were the greatest among them, Jesus says. And by the way, it is important to note that Jesus is not reinforcing the patriarchal stereotypes here of women are caregivers and therefore they did this. Jesus points to a new community where feminine greatness is taking children into their arms and is practiced by all men and women alike. Making this radical love central is Jesus' mission and vision for what it means to have status. Not that Jesus cares about status, but if he did, he said, become like a mother. Jesus taking the child in his arms demonstrates the way of nonviolence in this very violent world for kids. Because hope is to be found in the arms that hold, not guns and missiles, but little children. And so Jesus undermines the social hierarchy to create a new community where the least counts the most. Greatness is a matter of embracing the most vulnerable. But Jesus goes on and he says, whoever welcomes such child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. And so Jesus goes even further and makes an even more remarkable statement by saying, whoever receives one of these little children receives me, and whoever receives me receives the Father. Because Jesus not only embraces the little child, but Jesus also identifies himself with the child to be embraced. 
Did you hear that? Jesus does not only embrace the child, but Jesus also identifies himself with the child to be embraced. Remember the context of Jesus' passion. Jesus predicted the Son of Man is to be betrayed in human hands. He's to be killed, and after three days, he will rise again. And so here we see Jesus. He identifies himself as a suffering and rejected figure. The Son of Man must suffer. He's betrayed by his own. He's given over to death. And this description of the suffering servant, Jesus, he likens himself to this child for whom the time of childhood was a terror. Jesus likens himself to this little child who could be placed out in public, left for dead. Jesus likens himself to a child who does suffer from the violence of patriarchy, from the effects of famine, war, and social rejection. The fate of the little child is the fate of Jesus himself. And so, Jesus teaching that whoever receives a little child in his name receives him. It reverberates with the ominous tones of Jesus' passion that is ahead of him. In fact, Mark's passion narrative, Mark's story of Jesus' suffering crucifixion can be taken as a sequel of this very story of Jesus taking a child on his lap. The 12 disciples, who in chapter 10 try to prevent the children from coming to Jesus, the 12 go away when Jesus enters into his passion. Jesus, who like a child, is suffering and entering his most torturous times. The disciples disappear. One betrays him. Another denies him. The others scatter. The disciples, the men, flee. But the women, the women remain with Jesus. The women care for Jesus. The women risk their lives in solidarity with Jesus. Mark makes it plain and clear in his gospel that is the women who accompany Jesus in his suffering. And so when you see paintings of Jesus at the cross, you see Woman at the foot of the cross. This beautiful painting by a Ukrainian artist. Mark makes it clear the woman go with Jesus into suffering. In Mark chapter 15, it says, There were some women looking on from far at Jesus crucified. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James uh, and of Les and Joseph and Salome, who used to follow him and minister to him. And Mark says, There were many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem. And then we see in chapter 15, verse 47, after Jesus is taken down from the cross for burial, it is Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph who go to the tomb to see where Jesus is laid. And then we see it is the very same woman who buys spices and come back the next morning to anoint and care for Jesus' dead body. The women's solidarity with Jesus in his suffering and their loving servants to him in the hour of his death demonstrates the connection between receiving the little children and receiving 
Jesus. Lin-Manuel Miranda said it best, include women in the sequel. If you haven't seen it, go see it. The Schuyler sisters. The brilliance of Lin-Manuel Miranda in including women in the sequel and telling the story of Alexander Hamilton is not new. Because in the Gospel of Mark, Mark says loud and clear, include women in the sequel. The women's practice of receiving little children made them able to receive Jesus in his role of the suffering son of man. For in Jesus' passion, like the little child, he is accepted. So my friends, Jesus calls his disciples, you and I, to a motherly mission of taking the least and the lost into our arms. And by the way, one last thing. The church has often understood our salvation more in terms of being received by God rather than welcoming God. I'll say that again. The church has been so self-centered often that we have more often than not understood our salvation. Our salvation is being received by God rather than welcoming God. The idea that we welcome God in the least and in the little children is extraordinary. In this saying of Jesus, this amazing connection of the little child to Christ to God is simple and direct. It almost seems to happen simultaneously. At the moment when we welcome a little child like a mother does, at that very moment, we have welcomed Jesus Christ and God. To welcome is to welcome God. Salvation is so much more than being received by God. It is welcoming God, welcoming God in the little child, welcoming God and speaking up for women's values, and welcoming God and taking the marginalized into our arms. So perhaps this story is the most scandalous of scandals in the Gospel of Mark. By identifying so radically with a child, by embracing the road to rejection, suffering, dying, and being erased, Jesus is redefining both greatness and godness. It is not in the glory and honor of the Caesars, but it's in the vulnerability of a child that we encounter God. And Mark is pointing to something important, something essential about believing in Jesus. God becoming human, the incarnation upended every assumption of greatness that the world or we have deemed to be definitive. God becoming human decided that greatness is not about separation, but solidarity. God in Jesus decided that greatness is not about better than, but about relationship. Greatness for God is not about self-admiration or praise, but empowerment, encouragement of the other. 
Greatness is determined by weakness and vulnerability, by service and sacrifice, by humility and honor, by truthfulness and faithfulness. And so my friends, we, you and I, are called to live this kind of greatness. We're called to embody this kind of greatness so that the world can witness the true meaning of greatness born out of God's motherly love. A young rabbinical student once asked a rabbi, the story goes, Rabbi, why don't people see God today as they did in the olden days? The wise old rabbi put his hands on the student's shoulders and said to him, the answer, my son, is because no one is willing to stoop so low. Amen.